Incorporating AI into your business can be a delicate balance between speed and intelligence. That's why you might want to consider the Claude 3 family models from Anthropic for your enterprise AI. Haiku is their light and fast model, Opus is their most powerful model capable of high order thinking, and Sonnet is the best combination of both speed and intelligence. Join the thousands of enterprises who use Anthropic to navigate this new frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude, C-L-A-U-D-E today. Jumpstart your genius with Claude 3 by Anthropic. You've probably already gotten your first bug bite of the season, but itch is way more than skin deep. I thought that all it was telling us was how do we sense something outside of our body, but it's teaching us how we sense everything, not just outside of our body, not just the five senses, but a thousand senses. This week on Unexplainable, scientists have barely scratched the surface of itch. So how deep does it go? Listen to Unexplainable for new episodes every Wednesday. It's on! Hi, everyone. From New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Twitter X, here to reassure you that I'm not anti-Semitic while I threaten to sue an organization dedicated to fighting anti-Semitism. Just kidding. This is On with Kara Swisher, and I'm Kara Swisher. And I'm Naima Raza. Kara, are you saying that the Anti-Defamation League is not responsible for the dramatic drop in Twitter's value? I am as certain of that. I think it's ridiculous. Are you insinuating it would be a frivolous lawsuit? I'm insinuating that. For people to understand, uh, Elon Musk threatened to sue the Anti-Defamation League because he, he believes they and certain other groups are responsible for the decline in advertising because they pressured advertisers and forced them not to buy on the system. Not because he cut trust and safety, not because advertisers find themselves next to white supremacist organizations, mm-hmm. not because the ads just suck. Yeah. It's because of the ADL, which is just ridiculous. It's nonsense. The value of Twitter has dropped, some estimate, by as much as two-thirds since Elon bought it for an overmarked $44 billion. You know, it's, again, as I stress over and over again, it's a troubled platform. It's a troubled business. It would be hard for anyone, but someone to behave the way he's done has created a real chaos that advertisers... I talked to dozens of advertisers. They don't never mention the ADL. They always mention Elon every time. He often moves on from something, but this he has not moved on from me. He's incessantly tweeting about it while Twitter is blogging that they, you know, that they will not support hate mm-hmm. um, and anti-Semitism on the platform. He is boosting all kinds of conspiracies about the ADL. He is. You know, we, we, unfortunately, the purported CEO, Linda Yaccarino, is in the worst position. She has to put out these toothless statements and um, and to, to push back on that with advertisers. I'm sure she's got her hands full. Um and you it's know, job she wanted. I, I, I don't, pre- I, you know, calling him anti-Semitic is not the point. Um, mm-hmm. I, I have no idea. I've never heard him say something like that to me or anything like mm-hmm. that. People always say that, but he certainly is is dog whistling everywhere around anti-Semitism. So uh, it's something's happening here that I don't want to put a label on necessarily, but it's promoting really vile forms of speech. Well, we'll get a little bit more into Elon Psyche on Monday's episode with Walter Isaacson. Mm-hmm. I cannot wait. And uh, you discussed this threat of a lawsuit with Jonathan Greenblatt, the chairman of the ADL on Pivot mm-hmm. last week. But today we'll be able to ask comedian Alex Edelman about it. He's our guest today. He's coming off a Broadway run for Just For Us, his hit one-man show, which is closed on Broadway. And he also recently tweeted that he would foot the bill for the ADL if they lost the lawsuit. Yeah. I'm not sure he can afford no, that. No, I don't think he can. <laughs> I think he was just being... Alex, how rich are you? I don't think he is. But, uh, you know, who knows if it'll ever show up. It would cost the ADL enormous amounts of money. Who knows? I I doubt he'd never win this lawsuit. It's just ridiculous. By the way, free speech, they're allowed to tell advertisers not to advertise on the platform. It doesn't mean they have the power to do so or that advertisers use that as their only decision making. Of course, yeah. And we'll ask Alex Edelman about free speech as well, because as a comedian, it's a topic he thinks about a lot. Um, I met Edelman a few months ago at one of these schmancy New York dinner parties, but I just really liked him um, and went to the opening night of his show. And as soon as it opened, I'm like, oh, Kara's going to love this. Mm -hmm. Have to see him because the show is brilliant. And it starts with a Twitter list of all things, um, which brings Alex, a Jewish comedian, 
into a room with a bunch of white supremacists Mm -hmm. voluntarily. I went to see the show again with you. What did you think? I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was really smart. I like one man shows, one woman shows. I, you know, from I see them all the time. Whether it was Spalding Gray, uh, uh, Carrie Fisher, Mike Birbiglia, obviously. Um, but it's you know, and my favorite Anna Devere Smith. So I love one person shows, and I really like this one. I thought it was a beautiful set piece. I think he had a really organized story. It's almost, they're almost like essays, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're they're really long essays that tell a story and make a point. Usually make a point. Yeah. And I felt like this was great. And it was sort of on point for a lot of things I think about, which is, you know, not just free speech, but uh, the the deleterious effects of Twitter, people's mindsets, how they get to be as radicalized as they are, and also existing biases that have existed since the beginning of time. And I I thought it was Mm -hmm. a funny setup for him to create this list of white supremacists and then go to a meeting that they had organized on the list. It's such a feat to kind of over 90 minutes wind a story and take creative eddies and come back and continue a through line. Mm -hmm. And I think he did a fantastic job of that. I have to say he was not happy with me for having you in the front row. I saw him right after the show and he's like, you put Kara Swisher in my front row name. I said, I didn't put her anywhere. She bought her own tickets. Well, that's (laughs) the only seat. I bought the seats. I bought those seats and that was the only place I could sit. So I went to whatever ticket Broadway tickets, and that's where they were. So I sat there. I actually enjoyed it. I hadn't been in a front seat in a long, long time. Looking up at him. Looking up at him, and it was great. And he didn't spit too much. That's what this key part. He wasn't a spitter, as many people are. important part. I went to see Chicago once, the, and I was in the front row. I always bought tickets at the last minute, so it was often in the very front row. Yes. Even though you think those are really expensive, they're not. They can be the cheapest. And um, in this case, it were the only ones left. And I, the, the cast spit at me all night. It was really sad. Alex Edelman, only spitting at you, asking deep questions about to what our empathies extend. And it was funny. It was funny. A, you know, a Jew going to a, to a white supremacist meeting. Ah, like, yeah. You know. One of the things I actually had coming in, also by virtue of the fact that I met him at one of these dinner parties and the reviews it got and the places it got written up was, is this existing in an echo chamber or is this very important message he's sharing, which is, I think, around thinking about where our boundaries are, where our empathies lie, what we consider our realities. Is that reaching anyone who isn't already part of this kind of liberal upper crust choir? And I think that's a big question. Well, let's ask him about that. Broadway is like that, but we'll see what he thinks. We'll see what he thinks. All right, let's take a quick break and we'll be back with the interview. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big ROAS man. Then he just kept saying things like, the bigger the ROAS, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means calculating a return on ad spend. One thing's for sure, I'll be known as the ROAS man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com media to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com media. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Support for this show comes from Virgin Atlantic. Travel can be stressful. I don't think that's a controversial take. Sure, we all love taking a vacation and that moment we finally get a chance to relax, but we're always so focused on the destination that the journey just feels like a means to an end. Well, what if it wasn't? What if the time you spent getting there was just as enjoyable as the vacation itself? That's what Virgin Atlantic believes. That's why they offer loads of special extra touches that make your trip one to remember for all the best reasons. Picture this, you've made it to the airport, checked in your bags, and finally have a moment to settle in before takeoff. If you're flying upper class, you could be putting your feet up in a Virgin Atlantic clubhouse at London Heathrow with food made fresh to order and champagne delivered straight to your table with a tap of a QR code. I mean, it's rude not to, right? Once you're in the air, the experience continues with deliciously different dining, seriously comfy seats, and the best crew in the sky by miles. Check out virginatlantic.com for your next trip and see the world differently. 
Thank you for coming to the show. I'm very excited. Oh, please. Thank you so much for having me. So talk about the premise of your show for listeners who haven't been able to see it. Um, your story starts in a place that isn't usually known for creating anything productive on Twitter, specifically Twitter lists, which you call an obscure function of a dying platform. Explain, explain the premise of the show. Huh. Well, the premise of the show is um, I put out something a couple of years ago and I got a little bit of anti-Semitic feedback for it. And mm-hmm. I sort of went down the rabbit hole a little bit of these sort of like white nationalist corner of Twitter and started making a list of white nationalists and uh, make a long story, to make an hour and 20 minute story short, I wound up at this meeting of white nationalists in Queens. And that's what the show is about. Okay, so you made a list because you were fascinated by them or what? For, you know, I can't remember if I was just sort of trolling, Mm -hmm. but what I think I was doing was, I was interested in this corner of Twitter that I would never go to, but is um, and obviously I won't say how to find it on here because I think some of that underbelly of Twitter has become more of the actual belly of Twitter. No, it's the main stage of Twitter right now. Yes. Yeah. I used to be shocked at how easy it was to find. And now mm-hmm. it's now you don't even need to find it. But I was interested in sort of collating maybe a place that I could go, like a digital terrarium of, of lunatics. Mm-hmm. And, and then I became sort of fascinated by the cross-section of people who are anti-Semitic, because sometimes you'd log on and you'd see different types of anti-Semites on there. But, you know, the funny thing is, I think I checked it for, I started building that list in 2016, 2017, 2018, and then around the beginning of 2019, I kind of lost the appetite to look at it anymore. You called it, what was the name of the list that you created? Jewish National Fund Contributors. <laughs> Did they know they were on it? Oh, you bet. They, you bet. Uh, they get a little notification saying Alex Edelman has added you to the list of Jewish National Fund contributors. It's a lot of fun, actually. And what was their reaction to that? I mean, some people would block me, which does actually get you off the list, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, someone said to me, you know, I'm not anti-Semitic. I just don't like Jews very much. And I was like, <laughs> okay, well, I'd, I'd be happy to split that hair with you if you really want to. Really yeah. And you'd go... You know, there are people, by by and large, there are people behind these keyboards. Like, I think about that a lot. Yeah. Which is that some of these people, you know, they, they walk the streets uh, beside us. And instead of being, you know, horrified by that and terrified by that, uh, I am interested in the fact that there is this, uh, that there is this, element of the population that has this extremely unreasonable and socially unacceptable opinion. Right. So you got a tweet about an opportunity to go to a meeting, and I would have never met them in person. I would have been nervous. I mean, it never occurred to me not to go. Mm-hmm. Because? I never thought I'd get hurt. And I know that sounds silly because someone said because I get asked a lot if I'd go back. And I, I think I kind of would. Like, I think I'm in the market still mm-hmm. for... And I'm not an adrenaline junkie or like a gonzo person even. I'm just like, maybe this is maybe this is a bit of white privilege. That's okay to say. But like, I truly believe that yeah, I can talk to anybody. Right, right. So, but set the scene. You go into this apartment and you start to crave the approval of these people. You're sort of starting to get into the meeting to see how far you can push it, even though these people hate the idea of you. Why was that? It's Well, I think it's hard to hate people up close. Mm-hmm. And, and this also, is in an apartment, just for people to understand. You're in a small, a relatively small apartment. I thought it was pretty sizable for a New York City sizable. apartment, but yes, uh, it was okay. an apartment. <laughs> I remember admiring thinking, the size. I once, I used to say in the show again, can't remember if I still say it, but I used to say it's like pretty spacious for a New York apartment, actually, a pretty spacious living room for a New York City apartment. And I don't know if I want their approval, but I am certainly keen to stay in the pocket of the conversation. I think lots mm-hmm. of us have had that, you know, like a lot of people think the show is about anti-Semitism. And obviously it is, right? There mm-hmm. is obviously. But to me, the I, and I hate to do this because I think, think, think it's a little high-minded. I think the show is more broadly about assimilation. The show is more broadly about the type of things about ourselves that we're willing to sublimate in order to stay in various rooms and conversations. And I think that that has resonated with people who aren't just Jewish. I think that's one of the reasons right. that the show has found an audience because I think lots of people be you know, be it their identity or their political opinions or their personality, like they wonder about the things that they've had to sublimate in order to fit in. S- yeah, and I think that you know, I don't know that if I if I if I'd say I wanted their approval, but I certainly wanted to to be in the conversation. And someone, and at some point, by the way, I confirmed that I'm Jewish in the in the room, 
And people sometimes ask why I didn't lie about it. Yeah, why didn't you lie? I thought that during I, the show. I thought I had done enough. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, you I felt thought like I, wanted, I was like, well, you know, right. I'm not a stranger to them anymore. Because you didn't go in there yelling at them or no. Being I, like, I I am a talker, but but I also took a measure of the room before I got into the conversation. I sat there for a for me because I am a talker, a remarkable amount of time being quiet, listening mm -hmm. before I weighed in. And I don't know if I've ever mentioned this in the show. But I was struck by how many topics I have heard discussed and even agreed with in polite company. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for the sake of not getting um, fly-specked for a thing. That like what? I, like what, for example? You know, there was a discussion of... Uh, there's a discussion. It wasn't like whether they like succession. It wasn't on the time, but something no, like no, that. No, 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 no. But no. Modern Family. No, no, it's kidding. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But I think... I think there was a discussion of like, I guess to broadly term it, whether or not people in uh, people want white men anymore in different areas, which by the way, is a topic that I've heard discussed in murmured tones in very liberal spaces as well. Yes, indeed. And so the there's a lot of these conversations that are, um, or conversations about whether or not there is a powerful few that control, you know, our elections or something like that. That's a, I point that out in the show, like that's actually a liberal, mm -hmm. you know, we'd like to see meaningful campaign finance reform in the United States, like see Citizens United overturned. So we may disagree on who the, who's in the cabal, but there is a discussion of, of what exactly that cabal sure. is. No, no, conspiratorial thinking is everywhere. We just talked to Naomi Klein about this for Book Doppelganger. So it is It is everywhere. Mm -hmm. But but wait, wait, you talk about this idea of, of speaking to people who disagree with you. You talk about this a lot. You seek out these conversations. From I, I do the same. What's the driver for you when you do this? I think removing yourself from your natural habitat allows you to see the sort of the outlines of yourself more clearly, right? Like I think mm -hmm. sort of, also I was raised in a Talmudic environment I was raised in an environment where, where I'm, you know, where the idea that you're wrong is okay, or the idea that you know the truth lies somewhere between two binaries is mm -hmm. the most interesting one, and uh, and I actually feel that about most things. I actually feel that the truth is always somewhere between two poles. There are very few. Absolutely. There are very few instances. And instead of being a person who's constantly bemoaning the lack of nuance in our discourse, even though I do bemoan the lack of nuance in our discourse, um, I think getting at a, I think you lose nothing from talking to people. Right. So but with the people in this room, back to this room, um, who didn't want to spend time with you, you get called out and you you thought you'd done enough to admit you were actually Jewish. And other thing that you did was you felt safe in the room, something that might not have been the case for a woman or someone who didn't look white. I try to point that out in the show. I go, yeah. just so you know, the epitome of white privilege is a Jew walking into a meeting of white nationalists thinking this will probably be fine. You know, like things usually work out for me. Um, I do also think that I'm very big I think another reason the show has resonated with folks is that the show seeks to have a conversation about whiteness and Judaism um, and assimilation while eschewing a conversation about victimhood. Mm -hmm. Like one of the things that I so do- So you didn't want to get up and make a big speech about that. And I also like, didn't know- and How I, dare you? And I also didn't want to make a show about someone who gets up and makes a big speech. Especially like, you know- a thing that is true is I didn't feel unsafe and people are very keen on me. Like it's also not a referendum on how white nationalists are or white supremacists are in the United States. It's one person's, it's not a referendum on how a Jew or a, a person who isn't considered classically white in the truest, 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 truest sense should feel in that room. It's just, I, I think, I think to get up and give a righteous speech about how I'm the how I'm the, the aggrieved party, there's something very disingenuous about that. And I think um, there's a moment in the show where I'm be, I'm, I've been asked to leave. And, mm -hmm. and you know I say, I look very sad because clearly I'm the victim. And I think the performance of, of uh, I think the for me personally, the idea that, I'm, that I have a right to be aggrieved 
mm-hmm. given that they're so horrible and I'm such a good boy. Mm. There's something really interesting to me there because I'm I am fascinated by the politics of victimhood, like especially as it pertains to like college admissions. Like I feel like we're living in a time where people feel like the deck is stacked against them. Mm-hmm. And by the way, there is a part of me that wants to at different points in my life feel righteously offended, mm-hmm. right? Like there is a point in my life where I've wanted to feel like that's part of the reason I say in the show that I made the list because I want to be offended. Mm-hmm. I call it the grievance industrial complex for some, <laughs> it's now pretty much on the right right now. It's mm-hmm. doing, it used to be the left. Now it's the right, which is very aggrieved by something or whatever. Um, you have an empathy for these people in this room. Uh, I think you, you realize these white supremacists, which are terrifying to most people in general. Um, and they're meant to try to terrify people. That's their whole game, whether it used to be cloaks or mm-hmm. tiki torches or whatever. You came to the conclusion that there's sad people with sad lives um, and you have pity. Um, is, are they worth pity? Do we have to be empathetic? Because sometimes I'm like, you know what? No, I'm just, I don't care. They can die as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's case, it's case by case. I think that, again, for me personally, a huge part of my life is my interior life. A huge part of my life is my identity and my community. And I think our in- interior lives are not based entirely in grievance. And I think our interior lives are not based in the hatred of others. And our interior lives are not based in a frustration that we're not being heard. Mm-hmm. And I think that anyone whose life is like that, I think that's a real tremendous... And again, I don't know that this is addressed in the show, or if it is, it's probably not addressed enough. But like, it's a terrible thing to not have an identity. It's a terrible thing to to um, to be to feel uh, to feel voiceless and to feel um, to feel powerless. And like I say in the show, very clearly, they are one thousand percent wrong. They do have a voice. They do have power. But to feel a certain way, it's. Um, well, how much empathy does this group deserve? I mean, I would say you were kind to them. Probably very, probably very little as a collective, mm-hmm. but as a per, but person to person, probably a lot. But, you know, giving someone empathy doesn't mean not holding them accountable. Giving someone, showing someone respect also means expecting from them a certain level of humanity. And mm-hmm. so, like, I think sometimes people mistake giving someone empathy for giving them a free pass. There should be no free passes. We'll be back in a minute. Support for this show comes from Virgin Atlantic. Travel can be stressful. I don't think that's a controversial take. Sure, we all love taking a vacation and that moment we finally get a chance to relax, but we're always so focused on the destination that the journey just feels like a means to an end. Well, what if it wasn't? What if the time you spent getting there was just as enjoyable as the vacation itself? That's what Virgin Atlantic believes. That's why they offer loads of special extra touches that make your trip one to remember for all the best reasons. Picture this, you made it to the airport, checked in your bags, and finally have a moment to settle in before takeoff. If you're flying upper class, you could be putting your feet up in a Virgin Atlantic clubhouse at London Heathrow with food made fresh to order and champagne delivered straight to your table with a tap of a QR code. I mean, it's rude not to, right? Once you're in the air, the experience continues with deliciously different dining, seriously comfy seats, and the best crew in the sky by miles. Check out virginatlantic.com for your next trip and see the world differently. Support for this show comes from Ramp. Are you overwhelmed with managing your business expenses, vendor payments, and accounting? Is your finance software just not cutting it? Or maybe you're just looking to cut all that wasteful spending. Ramp could be a total game changer for you and your business. Ramp is the corporate card and spend management software designed to help you save time and put money back in your pocket. Ramp gives finance teams unprecedented control and insight into company spending. With Ramp, you're able to issue cards to every employee with limits and restrictions and automate expense reporting so you can stop wasting time at the end of every month. Plus, Ramp is easy to use. You can get started, issue virtual and physical cards, and start making payments in less than 15 minutes, whether you have five employees or 5,000. 
Not only that, but Ramp can save you money. They estimated that businesses that use Ramp save an average of 5% the first year. And now you can get $250 when you join Ramp. Just go to ramp.com slash Kara, ramp.com slash Kara, R-A-M-P dot com slash Kara. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank. Members FDIC. Terms and conditions apply. My sense of people have seen your show based on the audience I saw it with and the press coverage is liberals, intellectuals, other liberal intellectual famous people. Um, is there a power to political art of people seeing it or on the same political page? And do you think you change minds? I think I have. I think I definitely change minds because I think the, not to spoil anything, I think the truth about juice and whiteness is more complicated than either um, so the induction of doubt in that conversation I saw reflected in the ways that we, um, in the conversations that I had afterwards, like at downtown right. at the Cherry Lane, a guy came out of the theater. He said, you know, I always thought Jews were white until I saw the show. And then a guy behind him was like, wait, you thought Jews were white? Because he very clearly says that Jews aren't, you know, like uh, the Jews yeah. are like, it's a very, and I was like, you're both right. You're both right. The answer is that it's not a binary. Mm -hmm. uh, a really close friend of mine who who's a speechwriter once said to me, I can tell you if you think Jews are white. Like, if you think being white is incredible, then Jews aren't white. If you think being white is something to apologize for, then Jews are the whitest people who have, who have ever lived. In fact, <laughs> they are secretly white people, which is even worse, so they've opted into whiteness, which is, and so like, yeah. it's become a very uh, complicated thing. I actually had a, quite a few conservative audience members, and mm -hmm. without ascribing anything to any group of people, um, Orthodox Jews came to see the show in huge numbers, which was very gratifying because I was raised Orthodox and it means a lot to me to have a, a show where Orthodox people come and watch. Um, lots of Orthodox Jews are not as liberal as the rest of the audience. No, they and, are not. And so I'd see that sometimes reflected in the reaction. Like at, you do a show hundreds of times, you learn to read the reaction of the crowd or individual audience members. So that was actually kind of gratifying to see that... Um, also, a conservative newspaper, I'm told, gave it a very nice review, and so lots of conservatives came to see the show. And um, and so I had a really interesting, I would have really interesting conversations afterwards about about the show and about how I felt about Trump and how um, and how also maybe why am why aren't I not talking about anti-Semitism on the left? Mm -hmm. And my answer was the show's not about anti-Semitism. The show's about one person's experience on a on a winter right. night at the end of 2017. Yeah, yeah that's your next show. That's yeah, my next show is that. But you know, by the way, I think it would be a more interesting and, you know. More I think, controversial. I think it would absolutely be more controversial. Or Adam, my director, my, my closest friend, before he passed away, before the show, which was a real, you know, tough thing. Yeah. Adam and I were working on a show about Israel and Palestine. And so if I do a show about Israel and Palestine, then that certainly will be more divisive. But yeah, I think I got, I think, I, I think the audience that you describe, Kara, is, is absolutely the, uh, you know. On your side. Yeah, I think it, very few people uh, challenging the show. I also had lots of conversations with, the show is formed almost entirely through conversations with people, through with conversations with Mike Birbiglia, who who's one of the producers of the show, through uh, especially, and most importantly, conversations with Adam Brace, conversations with my friends, like uh, my friend Morgan, my friend Danny, my friend David, and even those famous people, like Jerry Seinfeld offered notes, Billy Crystal offered notes, um, uh, Steve Martin offered me a joke. So the show is formed by... Um, by conversations. Let, let me get back to this idea of, of changing minds. Um, let me read you the critique by my colleague Jackson McHenry at Vulture. He wrote, the show ends on a, quote, heroic gesture guaranteed to trigger huge applause. Um, and he said it felt uh, intentionally ambivalent, a nifty, thorny trick, spending a show teaching an audience to be suspicious of easy comforts and then leave them with one. Now, another thing he noted was to a much more extreme degree, he was also performing to ingratiate himself among the white nationalists. Talk a little bit, because, you you know, no one's ever happy with anything. I'm not like, but did you take in some of these critiques and think, am I too nice? Am I too non-offensive? Can offending be a good thing? I mean, the, I would argue that the most important bit of the end of the show is about this. Mm -hmm. It's about the presentations that we make to be palatable. And I think that, I didn't read that review, but I think that Jackson is actually quite like that 
um, like that feels like a B plus that feels like a B plus grade in terms of one comment. I mean, look, I think the show reflects my suspicion with easy comforts and easy judgments. And, Mm -hmm. and I'd hope that, uh, that the moments in the show where I, where I sort of turn that on myself is something that people really take in. And yeah, I, I do think that the, but also by the way, when I say conversations, Kara, with comedians, it's not just jokes from Billy Crystal and Mike Birbiglia. Mm-hmm. It is critiques from uh, from people who may take issues with different parts of the show. The shows that mm-hmm. I create are forged partially in these furnaces of conversation and disagreement. So what was a critique you worked into the show? You know, I I underscored... I underscore my white privilege in the show a bunch. And the jokes about my white privilege come in real estate in the show that I think is important. Mm-hmm. And also, by the way, I um, I used to jokingly, in 2018, I started writing the show, I jokingly refer to them as Nazis. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, smart people, I would have some conversation with smart people and they went, it's worth clarifying that that these people aren't Nazis, even if you're making jokes. So there is a, a joke in the show that frankly is would be there even if it didn't have a joke at the end of it. There's a clarifying point about the fact that being a Nazi is actually a very specific thing from an extremely specific moment in history. Like right. lots of like Yeah, people throw that word around quite a bit. I think we suffer from Nazi inflation in a huge yeah. way. It's like exclamation yeah. points. Like there are too many. I want to bring you into today. We're taping this interview just days after Elon Musk took to X, which was Twitter, to blame ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, for a 60% decline in the platform's revenue. Uh, What do you make of his public tirade here? And even more concretely, what would you like to see, you know, having been on Twitter and using it for this this list that you made and then to observe what was happening? um, What would you like to see them do to moderate anti-Semitic speech? Were you surprised by this? Well, you know, I tend to, this is a, this is a caveat, not a cop out. I tend to stay out of contemporary politics because number one, I'm not an expert. And number two, I change my mind all the time. But, and by the way, I have issues with certain things that the ADL has done over the years. Like anyone who's part of any sort of group that is faced with the challenge of having a, a body speak for their interests. Sometimes I disagree with the way that body does, but to be a little unprofessional here, it's the stupidest thing in the world. This Elon Musk thing. I, mm-hmm. I am full throatedly. I think it's ridiculous. And I think the idea that, that the ADL by highlighting the fact that there is anti-Semitism on Twitter and that the position of Elon Musk certainly hasn't been to crack down on it and make it better and make the situation better since he has uh, has joined it. The fact, the idea that that is somehow defamatory is is gross and um, and also immature. By the way, like mm-hmm. there's no there's really? no world in which I don't think there's a world in which Elon Musk has a legal case here. If he wins his judgment against the ADL for billions of dollars, I'll pay it. You said that. You tweeted that. You yeah. personally pay for it. I think it's absolutely. I think it's somewhere in the in the zip code of moronic. And so, but do you think that Twitter or Elon are in some part accountable for the rise of anti-Semitism and hate? I mean, the ADL has chronicled as has many people, not just them. He's let a lot of anti-Semites back on. He let Kanye back onto the platform after he kicked him off. He insulted advertisers, and yet it's. The ADL, that's the problem on Twitter, not uh, with the business of Twitter. I think it represents a, uh, I'm very careful about, about like, about not crying wolf. I'm very careful about like not seeing swastikas in our crossword puzzles or anything like that. Like, I think those are, those are silly things, mm-hmm. but I think in this case, Twitter has to make a decision in terms of whether or not they're willing to, you know, to give Elon the most benefit of the doubt you could possibly give him. If Elon truly is in pursuit of free speech, his, uh, he is guilty of vagueness. Mm-hmm. He is guilty of intense vagueness in terms of how, um, of how it's defined. I think in terms of, of what is hate speech, in terms of what is uh, incitement, in terms of what is uh, irresponsible uh, rhetoric. And 
I would love to see Twitter do more to, it used to be, by the way, this list, when I started cultivating it, mm-hmm. every couple of weeks, a whole bunch of people would disappear from the list because Twitter mods had done the dirty work of coming through and right. blocking them. Cleaning I, it up. I checked the list a couple of weeks. It doesn't happen as much anymore. Like, again, that's anecdotal. I'm not saying mm-hmm. it's representative. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I, you know, I'm not, maybe I'm not no, checking No, he's carefully. replatformed a lot of people. He's replatformed. It, it just feels like, and by the way, as a user, it's the less pleasant place to be. Right. Yeah, no, I just had a back and forth with someone named Alex Berenson, who's sort of this odd. Can anyone argue? Wide thing. Yeah. Can anyone argue that? And like Alex, they do. I, I'm aware of that. It's a less pleasant place to be. It used to be. A no, they place. were talking about. I I had turned off my comments after I started there in 2007. This is the first year I turned off comments because I don't like being called. Uh, you know, we'll see you next Tuesday every five minutes. Oh my minutes. God. You must every just get, minutes. you must just get. I just, and they're like the mad. Worst. I have my comments off. I said, I don't really feel like availing myself to your r- ridiculous the, trolling. The, That's the all. user experience for- is so viscerally unpleasant now. It just feels like the UX has spun out of control. Like, yeah. like I don't see the people I follow anymore. I've lost all sense of who's verified in any yes. real way. Yeah. Like, That's the point. That is actually the point. But let me ask you, though, is there some merit to this idea that our free speech is under threat? You've said you used to tell jokes you wouldn't tell anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, fat jokes, for example. Yeah. Um, talk about that, because a lot of people think the lines of comedy are, are too strict now. You know, I think I've said this before, too, but I kind of... Uh, like, by the way, yes, there are jokes that I, I have made in the past that I wouldn't make again. Um, my own personal standards have shifted in ways that, you know, some are societal, some are, you know, just things, you know, I don't find funny anymore. I think now are punching down given the way that like comedy doesn't exist in a vacuum. Comedy exists in response to the world that, which is why, by the way, it's so hard for comedy to age well. It's like really difficult for comedy mm-hmm. to age well. But alongside that, I think with new tensions, there are new tensions to play off of and new, you know, uh, and new nuances to dig at and new hypocrisies to examine. And so I think that, I don't know if, I don't like it whenever anyone says free speech is under threat for comedians because I'm aware of countries where comedians are being arrested for the jokes that they made. There was just a Lebanese comedian, I think, arrested for a five-year-old joke. And, you know, in China, China has been fining different comedians. Mm-hmm. And in Russia, some of my Russian comedy fr- friends are who have asked me not to say their names when I talk about this. Mm-hmm. Um, their, their lives are different now, too. And so the idea that free speech is under threat, um, I think we're certainly more interested in censure than we were, you know, say, you know, X number right. of years but ago. Certain things are off limits because you've changed. You, you saying you limit them. But an empirical question, do you think certain groups are too protected in comedy? Mm, I I don't know. I, I don't think so. I mean, uh, my first my first thought is, is I don't think so. I also think, by the way, whenever people are offended by something, I usually think of it as somewhat of a craft failure. Mm-hmm. Like you actually can say anything, provided you show the work, provided you justify the. There are plenty oh. of jokes that are politically incorrect that I think Just are think aren't funny. Well, I think there are some that I think are very funny because they show because they're they're presented with a level of irony that shows the viewer and the listener that they're not seriously saying this, they're not taking it seriously. Mm-hmm. And some comics are better at that than others. So sometimes when comics are, you know, called out for a joke, I think, well, you haven't made the irony that you're hoping to convey very clear there. You're not, it's so more of a craft So you just sound film. offensive. Yeah, you so sound so offensive, I, I, you sound lazy. And not, it sounded like, so uh, interestingly, Dave Chappelle had a controversial take on that in SNL monologue in the aftermath of Kanye's and Kyrie Irving's racism. What do you think of the craft of that? Do you recall what he said? Um, I do. And I did a podcast with Jonathan Greenblatt and Nick Cannon, where we had this long discussion about it. And I said then, it was right afterwards, that I wasn't going to weigh in on it because smarter people than me uh, w- had had differing opinions on it. And I, mm-hmm. I still feel that way. 
about that specific monologue, which is absolutely a cop out because yeah, I, it is. That's right. It's the it's What's, what did the smarter persons take? What was the? I mean, some people were like, "It's dangerous. It's um, it's it's a poison pill wrapped in sugar. It's a." Mm-hmm. And other people said he's just making uh, comedy. I've had a conversation about it with. I've had conversations about it with other comedians. Uh, it's an it's an evolving conversation. I think I feel differently about Dave Chappelle than I um, than I used to when I was a younger person. But mm-hmm. you know, for me to to say anything publicly about about him is not is not worth the squeeze. Not worth the squeeze. Oh, it's you not, get the squeeze. You know, there's a lot of. Yeah. I think there are sometimes. Also, by the way, I'm very big on this. I will cop out of things that I don't feel secure. Um, that I, that I, I will, I will oftentimes, you know, pass up, uh, pass up the shot, which by the way, I think is. Sure. You'll go into a white supremacist meeting, but you won't, you'll cop out on Dave Chappelle. A thousand percent. <laughs> yeah. It's, I, I'll give an opinion. He's, he just wasn't funny. That's all. I, I judge it by funny. And what I, you know, there was a controversy over the Netflix show and I was like, okay, you can make trans jokes. Sure. But an hour and a half of them. I guess not. Like it does, it starts to get unfunny and then it's weird. Like I put in some more lesbian jokes if you need to. You you know what I mean? Like I was like, it's not funny after an hour and a half. It's funny for 10 minutes, that kind of thing. I He only had one and it wasn't funny either. That one wasn't either. It's so, it's so interesting because sometimes like I have, I have opinions about comedians specials and someone will be like, it's the funniest thing I've ever seen. And I'm like, I do think that there's a responsibility not to, not to rec- to ta- to to call back the Jackson McHenry um, art- uh, review that I have not now read. Now it's eating at you. It's eating, now it's at, eating you. at. Now I'm going to read this review. Have it posted <laughs> on my dartboard. But um, but I wonder sometimes, like, do we have a responsibility to make everybody laugh at the material that we're doing, or do we have a responsibility just to make ourselves laugh? And like, do we have social responsibilities? Like, that's the first thing that's that opens true. the show, which is like, what is our responsibility as comedians to, um. I used to have a joke in the show, though, and I took it out because it was not worth the squeeze. But um, this comedian, at the beginning of the show, I run into a comedian, a very smart comedian, and she says to me, um, you know, uh, comedians have a responsibility. And I used to say, to inform people how we feel about the trans community. And she says, what? Right. No. And it's a, it's a, it was a joke that was, it wasn't in that <laughs> real conversation, but it was, it was topical. Yeah. But like, you know, the funny thing about that joke is it actually tells you where I am, right? Yeah. Like it tells you where I am in a very in a very slight way. Yeah. And so I do think that like doing material in ways that everyone can respect for their deftness mm-hmm. gets you out of almost anything. And whenever- You're 100% right. And I, I always say, just be funny. If you can be funny, that's fine. Rebiglia is great at that, by the way. He's really yeah. Good. Let me end uh, on a question. You built this show over the years with the help of close collaborators, and you've mentioned your director and close friend Adam Brace, who died earlier this year at forty-three from complications from a stroke. We recently and suddenly lost someone on our team, Blake Nishik, our senior producer, who had a profound impact I'm on our team. Sorry. Yeah, I'd love you to end by asking about Adam's impact on the show and on you also. By the way, I had a stroke many years ago at forty. I read. I read your piece Five, about maybe? I read your piece yeah, about maybe. how you were abroad and I thought about that a lot in the weeks following Adams. Yeah. So talk a little bit about his impact on the show and on you. Um forgive me if I get like a little That's okay. You know Adam was I met Adam in 2012. Um he directed, he worked on many beautiful shows including Fleabag. Um and uh and a show, uh, uh, and with a lot of mostly British comedians, he's a Brit, and um, and we would sit. I wrote all three of my shows with Adam in the same way, which is we'd sit at one table in Soho in London and sort of plot out the show, and I try to make him laugh. He had this big laugh, and um, he was. I don't know if if he was my closest friend. Sometimes I say he was my closest friend, but where did you meet? We met at a birthday party. We met at a birthday party for for someone else who's working on Fleabag, and and um, and he understood me better than anybody, and um, and was able to argue with me in a way that made me feel really seen and understood. And there isn't anyone, there isn't anyone who um, 
who I miss uh, more than him. And also the show is, it's not to give too much information, but you know, sometimes I really like doing the show because it makes me feel close to him because it's the last thing I'll ever do with him. And sometimes it, it feels a little macabre to be doing this thing that I built with a, a guy who I discussed every day. I discussed the show every day with Adam after the show, before the show. And so to now not, not have that partnership is really challenging, but he, he and I both, you know, shared some things and were different in certain ways. He was pathologically committed to thoughtfulness in a way that makes me look like a real, you know, a real vanilla, uh, liberal. And, uh, and I really, I loved him, um, hugely. And we just, I just did one show last week, uh, in Edinburgh, which is where at the fringe festival in his memory to raise money for an award they're setting up in his, his name, but his impact on my work is really, really, uh, incalculable. And he, and he, and there's one thing that I've been, I thought of this morning that's really stood out to me, which is, he said to me once after I came on stage, he said, you know, the audience laughs at that joke, but they're disappointed in you. Hmm. And I said, what do you mean? He said, that joke gets a laugh, but there's something in the audience that they can't quite suss out, which makes them, um, which makes them think slightly less of you. And it's because it's such an easy joke. And so a joke being easy sometimes means, um, uh, sometimes means being very obviously right. And sometimes the joke is, is being very obviously in bad taste. And so I think those well, have been pleaser. two. That means you're a pleaser. Mm-hmm. Or an offender of an easy offender, and so I think those guardrails have been really useful for me. But there are a thousand lessons from Adam, and um, and I I miss him very much. And it was a brutal shock to lose him so soon before the run. And what are you going to do next? Then that's my very last question. And with whom? I don't know. Um, I'm writing and directing a Christmas film, which okay. seems like a silly thing for an Orthodox Jew to do, but I'm very excited. No, no, it's good. And um, my daughter, who is Jewish, loves Christmas. She I mean, does. listen, there's <laughs> my a. My wife is like, can you stop? I'm like, I, uh, Santa's pretty cool. I don't know what to say. I mean, it really is. Um, it really is like the the best uh, holiday for me. And yeah. um, and I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a book about. Um, I'm going to go to other places I don't belong. And I'm, and uh, it may not be white nationalist meetings, but I'm very open to, if anyone has suggestions of places that I absolutely don't belong, I'm, I'm keen on, on, I'm keen on visiting. I think you should join Mar-a-Lago as a, as a, as a member. You know what? I've thought about it. I would love to get in. I would love to get in there. You know, if anyone, <laughs> yeah. if anyone, if anyone knows a, a problematic rapper, um, uh, <laughs> you know, I'd be, I'd be really thrilled. I'd be really thrilled by that. Well, I'm super excited. Um, to see what you do next. Thank you so much for having me. That was beautiful to hear him talk about Adam Brace. Mm -hmm. And I like that you asked where they met originally. It was really nice. I can't imagine, obviously we lost Blake, but we can imagine launching within two months of the passing of your partner. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's interesting, it reminded me a little bit of Rent, um, mm. where the playwright died right mm -hmm. before the show premiered. And of course, yeah. it was an enormous hit. And that impact, um, you know, it's just, you could feel it in the show and it probably made it more emotional. It made it more emotional. And it's sad that Adam Brace wasn't there to see all the feedback in the show, which mm -hmm. has been very positive. Although Alex was a bit hung up on that Jackson McHenry review. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> now he is. Now he, I don't read them. <laughs> I don't, I never believe people when they say that. I read every fucking review I ever get. Do you read every review? Sure do. I do you change to. things because no, of the reviews? No, not at all. <laughs> you just read them to think that you're right? Uh, often I am. But I want to hear what <laughs> smart people say. I don't, dumb people I could care less about. I, I got one on Pivot the other day, and I was like, you're an idiot. I wrote them, you're an idiot. That's. They were like, you only talk about this. I'm like, we talked about, and I counted them. I'm like, we talked about 16 different things. So <laughs> this is inaccurate, and I will not tolerate what you have to say. On that subject of hearing what other people think, you and I have talked about this a lot. We try, we endeavor to bring voices that disagree, mm -hmm. and we've worked a lot to bring conservatives onto the show, even though you, I would say, are not um, 
the favorite of conservatives, Kara. I don't know if you're aware. I just want to tell it's you that. It's not true. They love me. Some, some don't. They do. But you also, you talked about this. You turned off your Twitter comments. Do you, that's do you the, that's feel... That's the trolls. That's the Russian trolls. But do, do you ever, like, are you ever sad that you're not hearing what people think because you turned no, off these they, comments? No, because what they do is they just, they do it in a different way. I can see them. The ones who, I want the ones who want to do maximum effort to really give their opinion. That's why. You, you can give comments on someone's stuff without being just below them. You can be, you can re, repost it and stuff. So it's fine. He, he was not giving comments on everything, Alex Edelman. He was, he admitted, I like someone who cops out, but admits that they're copping out. He's mm-hmm. like, it's not worth the squeeze for mm-hmm. me to comment on Dave Chappelle. Yeah. But I don't feel the same way about Dave Chappelle that I felt when I was yeah. a kid, yeah. which tells you what Sounds he might like think about. Sounds like my son. Louis thought it was, oh, he lo- still likes him and everything else, but he, he thought he overdid it on the trans stuff. Like, he's yeah. like, he was bored. He didn't think it was funny. That's all. So if you're not as funny and you're a comic, you have a problem. Yeah, although that was interesting to hear him say, what is a comedian's responsibility, right? Yeah. And and the interesting point he made is if a joke is offensive, it's in some way a craft failure. Um, that was... I think that's true. Do you think that's always true? I do, I do. Yes, because I think people that there's cheap jokes and I think people have had traffic in them. You don't think anyone is ever pre-offended? Yes, I do. And you shouldn't listen yeah. to comics if you are. And I think... Yes, I think that's the thing. If some yes, people are but why are, you lis- why are you listening to comedy if you don't want to be offended a little bit? You know, in the case of Chappelle, like, mm-hmm. he made a lesbian joke. It just wasn't that funny. I wasn't offended. I was like, can you... There's so many good lesbian jokes you can make. Um, in the case of Bill Burr, who I really love, I think he's amazing. He's always saying mm-hmm. super offensive things about women and stuff like that. It's part of Zach. And I don't mind it. I don't mind it. I think you have to go into comedy with an open mind. I think mm-hmm. it, it, not funny is different. And cheap shots are are not funny. They just never are. They're cheap mm. shots. And maybe it gets a laugh or a little huh out of people. But you're playing to the bottom. And I think really sophisticated comics don't, don't do that, don't traffic in that. It's interesting, even in this conversation, talking about the hush tone, you know, uh, contrarian opinions you hear amongst polite liberal society and yeah. also the, that he didn't want to be righteous. He always, mm-hmm. he wanted to avoid righteousness. And I think that's smart because righteousness only helps you gain popularity with people who agree with you. Mm-hmm. Um, but he made a distinction between empathy and giving someone a free pass. Yeah. Where's the line for you? Because you, I thought very, you were very honest saying sometimes I'm like, I don't think these people deserve. I don't. You know, of Much of the time I don't. I think I don't mean to say I'm right about it. I just don't have time for it anymore. I'm too old and I'm like en- enough with you. Um, <laughs> when do so, you age out of giving someone empathy I don't think for I was, their opinion? I don't think I was particularly empathetic ever in my life. But I think he was right. He's, he, the, you should realize people are human a lot of the time. I've been thinking about mm-hmm. this a lot. I'm writing the last chapters of my book. And, Mm. you know, I always try to think of people as human beings often. And that's why I don't tend to write about their personal lives or what they look like and things like that. Everyone has their different things and judge them only on their business, what they're doing in their business. And so I think he's right. I think you have to see people as people and understand how they got this way. How did they get, how did they get in this room? How did he got in this room? It was to do a show, right? How did they get in this room? is a really interesting story. Um, and what what caused them to think these things, which are so ridiculous when you just, if you're, if they're read to a, a, a decent person, I'm sorry, if you think uh, black people or Jewish people are less, you're not a decent person. You're just not. Mm-hmm. I mean, and so I think he, get, how people get places is a really important story. Yeah. And I think that's why he's empathetic. Yeah. And he's willing, the fact that he's willing to sit there and engage those conversations after the show is very yeah. interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and not just how he got in there, but also how he got out, yep. which is what we're going to do right now. Get out of this room. So, Kara, can you read us out, please? Sure. Today's show was produced by Naima Raza, Christian Castro-Rossell, Megan Cunane, and Megan Burney. Special thanks to Kate Gallagher and Cody Nelson. Our engineers are Fernando Arudo and Rick Kwan. Our theme music is by Trackademics. If you're already following the show, you're sitting with me in the front row. If not, I'm staring you down critically from the front row. Go wherever you listen to podcasts, search for On with Kara Swisher and hit follow. Thanks for listening to On with Kara Swisher from New York Magazine, the Vox Media Podcast Network, and us. We'll be back on Monday with more. 